Welcome to Intergenerational Politics with Jill Weinbanks and Victor Shi, where we host weekly political discussions that are engaging and relevant to all generations. As always, we want to thank you for listening to Intergenerational Politics. If you haven't done so already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. We also have a website, intergenerationalpolitics.com. Um, this is Victor Shi. I'll be an incoming freshman at UCLA next year, and I'm also the proud co-host of this podcast with Jill. Um, Jill, do you want to give us a brief introduction about who you are for our audience listening today? Sure. My career started during Watergate when I was uh, the only woman on the trial team for the Watergate trial. Um, I went on to become the general counsel of the U.S. Army, and I am now an MSNBC contributor and the author of The Watergate Girl, about my experiences during Watergate. Uh, The subtitle is my uh, bringing about justice against a criminal president, which has become relevant again. And today we are very thrilled to have as a very special guest, Bill Kristol. He has been a leading participant in American politics uh, and the debates surrounding everything uh, for many years now. He's a widely respected analyst of politics and uh, has been the founder of the um, Weekly Standard. He served in the Reagan and George H.W. Bush administrations before founding the Weekly Standard in 1995 and was an influential intellectual on conservatism for over two decades. Now he is the founding director of Defending Democracy Together, which is a 501c4 advocacy organization composed of conservatives and Republicans fighting for consistent conservative principles like the rule of law, free trade, and expanding legal immigration. Um, He is in the midst of the national debate on issues ranging from uh, American foreign policy to the future of the Republican Party and the meaning of American conservatism. He is the perfect guest to talk about what being a conservative means in our current political climate, why defending America together opposes President Trump, what he sees as the authoritarian and nativist um, inclinations and impulses of the Trump administration, and what it means to hold conservative values and what it means to be an American. So thank you very much for being here, Bill. I think this will be a very interesting discussion, and I'd like Victor to ask the first question. Thanks, yes. Joe. Yeah, so, um, you know, you worked in the Reagan and Bush administrations, um, you know, governments that you believe reflected what a Republican administration should be like in terms of the true meaning of conservatism. Um, for my generation and for myself, um, Trump may be the only reference point of the Republican Party that we have. So it's fair to assume that our view of conservatism and the Republican ideology is a bit inaccurate. So um, can you tell my peers and I how we should believe conservatism and explain what it means for our audience, especially those like me who grew up knowing only Trump as a representative of the Republican Party? I mean, I wish I could confidently tell you that it's inaccurate, but for you it is accurate. And maybe it's unfortunately going to be accurate for a while longer. I mean, that the total collapse of the Republican Party before Trump has been one of the really startling stories of the last three, four years. Trump's election was a surprise. His presidency has been as bad as I expected. But it would be a lot better if you had a party 
that stood up to him, not even all the time, but some of the time or some of the party. And that's in fact happened in history before. It's not as if we, we have had presidents who've gone off the rails, who tried to do things they shouldn't have done, uh, foolish policies, or as uh, Jill said earlier in a way, uh, implied sort of criminal uh, or quasi-criminal actions, impeachable actions. But it was, some Republicans did oppose Nixon, some Democrats opposed Johnson's war in Vietnam. It's a, one of the really amazing thing has been the uh, things for me has been the collapse of the party, the elected officials, and of the conservative uh, sort of elites, the conservative intelligentsia, conservative business types, donors, and so forth. So that's bad, and I, I don't want to sugarcoat it. I, I can look back at a healthier conservatism and a healthier Republican Party, but I do think for people your age, it's a real question, and for all of us, therefore, it's a real question going forward, uh, whether we ever get that party back. Yeah, I mean, so when you were in the Bush-Reagan um, administrations, what were just like the basic character and like values of those presidents? Um, and then like kind of contrast that with the views and actions of Trump um, for this generation who may not remember what it was like to grow up in a time with a traditional sane uh, Republican party. Yeah, I mean, Reagan and Bush were actually very different, of course, fought each other in 1980 and, and uh, represented sort of different wings of the party. But I think each in its own way was pretty impressive. I mean, Bush was a war hero, an establishment with genuine patrician, patrician background. His father was a distinguished senator, um, but a real patriot. Um, sort of established, the best of the American establishment is the way we put it, and uh, had some limitations and made some mistakes. And, but, uh, you know, that's an, imp an important part of American history. And, you know, most, at the end of the day, countries have establishments, and, and it's good to have a reasonably healthy and civic-minded and patriotic uh, one. And Bush was therefore willing to compromise, and uh, he compromised with the Democratic Congress on a Clean Air Act and the Americans with Disabilities Act and a budget deal. Also willing to be tough and was with Saddam Hussein and so forth. Reagan came out of the ideological wing of the Republican Party. Um, some people preferred that, some people preferred the Bush wing, but Reagan was a man of principle. He had his views. Uh, not all of them were, I didn't agree entirely with all of them, but I agreed with the basics of them, especially after the 70s, that getting back to uh, a sort of an energetic free market economy and above all, standing up to the Soviet threat abroad were key to our success. Um, but whatever their differences, both of them, and they made mistakes, but both of them were awfully different in character. I mean, they were genuine patriots. They genuinely looked at, you know, of course they were politicians, but they didn't sacrifice the public good for, for trivial personal gain or, or for uh, trivial partisan gain, really. And at times did things uh, that really were cut against their partisan interests. I mean, Reagan had a lot of advice in 1981, 82 to uh, loosen up, uh, to pressure Volcker to loosen up on uh, the crackdown on inflation and to stimulate the economy and not to go ahead with the tax cuts and so forth. Uh, Bush had a lot of pressure uh, to do um, other things when he was president. And both of them, uh, you know, on the big things, tried to do what was right for the country. Yeah, all of that is lost now. And you kind of mentioned just serving on behalf of the public. Trump is not serving on behalf of the public. It seems just his own interests and his own political pursuits. Yeah, um, very much. I mean, for people, yeah. you're McCain is a more recent example, I would say, right. of a, a truly patriotic uh, American. Mitt Romney, again, maybe not the perfect candidate, but but again, someone who sincerely, his father also, he very much an establishment figure, his father, governor of Michigan, but 
uh, someone who really uh, tried to do the right thing for the country and, and never would have thought of behaving, honestly, neither McCain nor Romney, behaving in the way that uh, Trump routinely behaves. And so the, mm-hmm. the degradation of our culture, the, the demagoguery, the nativism, the, the uh, you know, willingness to pander to the worst instincts of people, that's something we've, we've seen it among many politicians, obviously, and some in both parties. There's always been that, that strain in the Republican Party, but it's never ascended to the presidency. And, and one of the really incalculable aspects, I think, of the Trump years is how much damage has having had a pre- president who panders to those aspects of, of America and of Amer- the American people, the American psyche. How much damage does that end up doing? You know, it's one thing to have a Joe McCarthy as a senator. It's one thing to have a George Wallace as a governor and, you know, a presidential candidate who won five states. They both did quite a lot of damage, but nothing like having a president who does this consistently for four years. So that's what worries me, really one of the things that worries me the most going forward. I I would have to say um, today's a bad day to have mentioned Mitt Romney, um, who had some hopes for, but um, I share your view and your worry in a way that I never thought would be possible. And um, I actually, of course, am old enough to remember when there was civil and intellectual discussions and debates between conservatives and liberals. Uh, They focused on the issues. They agreed on the facts. They didn't make up facts to have a fake argument. They actually agreed on the facts and debated what policies would reach a solution to any problems. Um, I can remember the uh, William Buckley's firing line program and then the Buckley-Gore debates. Um, I long for a time when we could go back to having an agreed set of facts and, and to go back to that. <clears throat> now we're in the days, you know, following Ruth Bader Ginsburg's untimely death and Republicans who said in 2016 that Obama can't have even a vote, no consideration, no hearing, no interviews of a candidate for a nominee for the Supreme Court, but they're rushing ahead to make sure that they nominate and confirm uh, Donald Trump's third choice for the Supreme Court, his, he, so that we would now have a 6-3 conservative majority on the court. Um, and so I, I'm wondering from your perspective, having been in a day when there was compromise and discussion and when things got done, there wasn't gridlock, um, and when dialogue across party lines meant something, um, but didn't mean that you couldn't reach a conclusion, much as Scalia and Ginsburg did, where they were friends, even though they were at opposite ends of the spectrum. Nowadays, we're so divided. Is there some advice that you would have for me and for Victor's generation uh, about how to have that conversation with Republicans, uh, particularly those who are still, you know, supporting Trump. Um, and particularly, I want Victor's generation to know that it's possible to have a conversation. So, what would you, what would you advise? I mean, honestly, it's hard with Trump being there because he's such a polarizing figure, and he invites it and welcomes it that uh, he polarizes his own supporters, and they become almost unrecognizable someone like me who knew a lot of these people and worked with a lot of them really quite closely in some cases over the years. You know, I think if you want to see that older tradition, 
I read the, among the inter conservative intellectual types, there, there it remains. Uh, we had a piece in the Bulwark by Adam White, a constitutional scholar, urging a, an effective compromise, and Republicans should not push this through in a really uh, semi-illegitimate way at the, in the last weeks of a Congress after blocking Garland, who, who was nominated in February or March, I think, for the Scalia seat. Um, and it's, but in return, uh, perhaps Biden or the Democratic leadership could say they're not going to expand the court. You know, we'll just have a deal to kind of have this go in an orderly way that doesn't damage our institutions. And in fact, David French, uh, my friend who writes for The Dispatch and who's quite conservative on many issues, seconded this idea in Time magazine just yesterday or today. So it's not as if, I mean, I think one could imagine I could get together 10 people and we could have a nice discussion and work out a lot of these things and agree to disagree on some things and, and probably find actually areas of common ground on, on quite a few things. I do think, now whether that's doable in a highly polarized partisan atmosphere with all the incentives for that that are built in, I think it's an open question. I do think Trump makes it infinitely worse and harder. So. That's why I've been so focused on just defeating Trump, to be honest. It sounds sort of simple-minded. Of course, he's a symptom. He's not just the cause and so forth. But I think of it as an infection or something if you're ill, you know, if you have a problem, I mean, and you go to the hospital, you need to deal with the infection first. Then you can deal with whatever the problem is in your, you know, in your, in your knee or in your, you know, and other serious problems, obviously, and whatever. But you've got to get rid of the infection. And Trump, just having a president who just, endlessly looks to polarize, never looks for a chance to bring the country together. We've, even in the midst of a pandemic, as late as March of this year, I believe we didn't have high hopes for Trump. I tried to find someone to primary him. I was against him. I was working already helping, trying to organize Republican voters against Trump and Republicans for Biden. But even then I thought, well, maybe in this pandemic, he'll at least say, you know, let's, this is a genuine national crisis. There's no right wing or left wing way to deal with a public health threat, really, you know, there, there's science, and then there are policies, and there might be differences on weighting some of the policies, and, but it's not really an ideological thing, right? And the idea that he's managed to have the country divided on that, so that a third of the country thinks, you know, it's a good thing not to wear masks, I mean, that really is, that's a level of uh, damage. And unfortunately, you got to say, the public seem, parts of the public seem receptive to that too, which is, so there's a level of irresponsibility there that's a little bit worrisome for the future, so. Definitely, and I think we were at an election that was focused on the 200,000 deaths that have occurred and the fact that we don't really have a, a national response to COVID, but do you think that this Supreme Court uh, vacancy has shifted the terms of the election and changed it to one where it could end up motivating Republicans who want this seat to be filled by a conservative justice, or could it motivate the Democrats to suddenly realize what is at stake if this goes forward? And I want to add to that question a sort of second thought, because you mentioned uh, how we used to have bipartisan agreements and discussions and could reach compromise, and you suggested one, which would be, we won't enlarge the court if you agree to wait until after the election. Uh, is that even remotely possible that that would happen? Or is McConnell and Trump so interested in power and a conservative court that no matter what, they're going ahead with it, even if it hurts some endangered 
Republicans running for re-election. I mean, when, when people made this proposal and Adam made it in the bulwark, which I'm editor-at-large at, so I had a little bit to do with it. I mean, we kind of thought, well, there, McConnell personally may not like it and Trump may not, but there might be four or six or eight Republican senators who would like that idea, take the pressure off, let them not energize their opponents by having to cast a vote and, you know, at the end of October in a very controversial uh, flipping a court, uh, a court seat and maybe the court on some issues. Uh, and that therefore there might be, and the Democrats would be, I think if they, they had no particular interest in expanding the court, as long as you didn't have this kind of thing going on, they could just make the appointment in normal uh, after January 21st and, and fill the seat. Um, and we'd go on with some form of business as usual. Uh, and, uh, but I've been amazed at how, yeah, no Republicans have really stepped up on this, including Mitt Romney, whom you alluded to earlier, and I mentioned who, uh, I, I'm pretty confident read those pieces, but didn't choose to go that way. Mm-hmm. So I guess the, so the short answer on that is, is pretty uh, gloomy. Now, things could change. You know, we could be two weeks from now, three weeks from now, the fights goes on, Republican senators realize the country's not with them on this. Uh, maybe they don't like the nominee so much or she doesn't do so well in some hearing or something and suddenly you could imagine, I can still imagine this happening. In other words, it has a default. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, in terms of the politics of it, I think it's hard to say, but the polling shows right now that people think it's a little bit illegitimate or questionable to be doing this. Most people aren't focused on court seats the way we are. So for most people, I think the economy and COVID and the big issues still tend to outweigh that with a little bit of a theoretical, you'd have to explain to people, well, if this seat flips, then the following might happen. And that's a little hard to, that's perspective. On the other hand, with the Affordable Care Act up for a hearing, what, November 10th, I think, um, you know, there are real possibilities of decisions being made that people might not like and would affect their lives, obviously. Um, so I think it'll become, uh, parts of each base will be energized. But I'd say for the swing voters, and we've dealt with quite a lot of them in some of the efforts we've made in Republican voters against Trump, I think more chance of people turning against Trump and against the Republican senators on this, less because of the details of the issues, though a little bit of that, and more of a sense of, we, we just can't, you hear this from a lot of swing voters. Uh, we can't go on like this. It's too divisive. It's too partisan. It's too crazy, frankly. It's not healthy for the country. People don't like it when they can't speak to their f- other family members because they're now divided over Trump. And we're going to have six weeks where no one can speak to anyone, right? I and mean, it's going to be really worse. And so I think in that, and Trump's the incumbent, you know, he, he can demagogue all he wants, but he created this circumstance. He could have avoided this by just saying, uh, you know, uh, over the weekend uh, after Justice Ginsburg passed away that he was going to withhold his ability to nominate or he would nominate but understand that there might be a hearing or two or, in, you know, the, the FBI could do its investigation and so forth. But he understood this would not happen until the next, he hopes to, he, he could say, I hope to be reelected and then we will move quickly on this nominee, but I'm not going to urge Senator McConnell to jam it through. He, of course, didn't choose at all the statesmanlike way uh, and, um, but I think as a result, there is something of a back, could be something of a backlash. I also think if you think about the, I wrote this up on the bulwark. I mean, just Ruth Bader Ginsburg is kind of a folk hero, you might say, to an awful lot of Americans. And I'm struck talking to people. I don't know what you found, Joe or, or Victor, on this. I mean, not just to liberals. I mean, there are a lot of moderately conservative people, more women, I would say, for whom she was such an important figure in terms of being a trailblazer and an admirable impressive 
overcoming all those obstacles, an admirable person. Uh, and there's a lot of respect for her in the sense that, you know, doesn't mean you have to appoint a justice who exactly would agree with her, but somehow just being so contemptuous of what her wishes were might rub people the wrong way. And you combine that with a sense that um, people do respect the Supreme Court. I think they think actually correctly, I would say that Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts has kind of helped the court avoid some of these most polarizing positions in the last year or two, and that that's been good for the country. Um, and that, you know, the court's one of our institutions that works better than most. And now it's being just pulled into this mess. Um, and then on the most famous issue, I guess, Roe v. Wade, uh, whatever the merits of the decision, uh, the polling consistently shows people don't really want to overturn it at this point. They might want to cut back on certain aspects and stuff. So all of those things make me think that the calculation politically is very tough for Republicans. But McConnell may have just decided, you know what, Trump's probably going to lose. We may lose the Senate. We Republicans may lose the Senate. This is my legacy. I want another conservative justice on the court, and I'm just going to jam it through no matter what. Whether that justice will end up doing what McConnell expects is another question, of course, as Roberts and Gorsuch to some degree have shown these you know, justices aren't quite as predictable as politicians sometimes want. It's, well, the history on the Supreme Court is that oftentimes judges turn into justices who go completely the opposite of what the appointing president was expecting um, because they recognize the higher duty to the Constitution. You've noted that the bulk of Americans, the overwhelming number, support Roe and would not want it abolished. The overwhelming number of Americans support the ACA, which if this is rushed through, the appointment, the new um, justice could be the decisive vote in abolishing pre-existing conditions and the entire ACA. Um, but you know what would happen in that case, it's interesting, Jill, is that, uh, pardon me for interrupting, is, yeah. so in that case, I mean, the of course, if there's a President Biden in a Democratic Congress, they'll just pass a new ACA. The, the reason it would get struck down has to do with the mandate uh, being allegedly right. unconstitutional and, you know, unseverable from the rest of the act. And they could pass the rest of the act without the mandate, honestly, and it wouldn't, it may not be as healthcare policy quite as good, but they can still prohibit. No one, no one doubts the federal government could prohibit discrimination for pre-existing conditions. They already did in certain respects before the ACA. And so I, I think people in some ways also, the conservatives who are all excited about this aren't really thinking it through. I mean, they're not, what are the, I mean, I say this to my conservative friends who are so excited about it. The court's become this kind of thing for conservatives, and this gets back to the earlier question, in the absence, I'd say, of a very concrete agenda for helping Americans or for dealing with America's place in the world and so forth. It's become this sort of golden, I don't know what, you know, mystical object. Well, everything's worth sacrificing for the court. What exactly, if you're an actual conservative on social issues, on foreign policy, on even on economic policy, what are you going to get from the court? You can do, they can do a lot of things that will annoy liberals and that maybe help some individual groups of conservatives be overturned some regulations at all, but they're not going to fundamentally change the welfare state. They're not going to fundamentally, uh, I don't, they're not going to reverse same-sex marriage. I don't actually think they'll reverse Roe. And if they did, New York and California would promptly pass legislation guaranteeing abortion rights, at least in the big states. So, I mean, it's it's all a little bit out of kilter. I'm not saying the court's not important. It's very important. And the lower court judges, and I mean, Jill knows this, you better know this better than I, you know, there's a lot of issues they touch and they deal with. But the, the investment in it has become sort of a, uh, you know, the way people believe in certain, you know, things that they get such exaggerated import 
and I think they're going to pay a huge price though for this kind of obsession with the court. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, um, I think that kind of brings us into our next question. You mentioned, you know, what type of judges Republicans ought to be thinking about and what values do they hope to get out of this court? Um, so for you, what type of justice would you like to see appointed? Are there any specific names? We have a few kind of in the bag with um, Amy Coney Barrett and um, another one from Florida. But um, for you personally, for Republicans that you've been talking to, um, what are what are you seeing on the ground? Are they thinking that Amy Coney Barrett kind of represents what you guys are hoping for? Or is it um, you know, someone different that you have in mind? And one of the stupidest things about the current moment, I suppose this has always been true, though, People read two articles about some judge somewhere who's been a judge for one year or three years, and before that was, in her case, a law professor, and other people's case, lawyers or prosecutors or lower court state judges or whatever, and they think they like can judge. You know, they think they're capable of making a judgment about how qualified that person is. It's so ridiculous. Would you do that in any other sphere? You'd read some profile of a doctor and then say, well, that must be the best <laughs> oncologist in the world. I mean, don't, isn't that, wouldn't you want to know more? Wouldn't you want to read peer reviews? Wouldn't you want to uh, consult some people who've studied these people's writings and know them personally, perhaps? And, but of course, these days, everyone just takes, you know, you know, becomes sort of a litmus test thing or well, she has an attractive personal story and, you know, she's religious and I'm, I'm if you're that person, I'm a for religion, you know, I'm, I, I want religion to influence my judges a little more. So, or I, I share some views perhaps with her, but I don't feel honestly, I don't, so I don't know any of them. I, you know, personally, I, I would say, and this was in 2005, which wasn't that long ago. It seems like long ago to you. Because you're, you would have been three years old, but I mean, if you're Dylan, <laughs> it's, it's recent times. <laughs> I and David Frum and a lot of you know, reasonably prominent conservatives yeah. opposed Bush's nomination of Harriet Myers, who was his White House counsel, who was a perfectly decent person, so far as I know. But we just thought, geez, this is not the quality of judge you should have uh, for the Supreme Court. She had no judicial experience. She was a a lawyer in Houston, I think, but not you know, with great distinction or anything like that. She had been Bush's counsel. She knew him, uh, hadn't really gotten rave reviews for that either, honestly. And so we, we thought this is just, you know, uh, we had no ideological issue with her. I uh, didn't really know her views on anything. There were plenty of conservative judges at the appellate level and state court level, we thought, who would be much better, you know, judges. And so there used to be a little more of that too. I mean, whatever, again, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was one of the major legal minds of her generation, was put on the circuit court first and then moved up. Breyer, one of the major law professors in circuit court and moved up. Uh, Kagan, Dean of Harvard Law School. I mean, they were all, you know, substantial and the same, I'd say on the Republican side with Roberts and Alito and stuff. So, I mean, so A, I think the higher quality judges do have a little bit more willingness sometimes to listen to their colleagues and compromise. Not always, they can be pretty tough, Scalia and uh, actually RBG in her own way. But still, I think there's more of a sense that at times we need to put some things aside and you know, agree for the sake of the institution and for the sake of a certain kind of comedy. And, uh, but that's, uh, and I'm not saying these individual judges who are being mentioned now wouldn't be that way either. I just think we don't know much about them. I mean, for me, I mean, at least Amy Coney Barrett, she's a law professor, she's written some things. Uh, she was much discussed when she was nominated for the appeals court three years ago. This, this judge from Florida, honestly, I mean, I follow these things reasonably closely. I'd never heard of her. I don't believe anyone much had ever, which doesn't mean that she's not 
it wouldn't be perfectly good, but it would mean you'd sort of want to go look at her opinions, wouldn't you? You'd want to see what her background was. And people are just weighing in because they think it'd be good to have someone from Florida because Florida is a swing state, or it wouldn't be good to have someone from Florida because she doesn't seem to have any written record on, or someone like her, because she doesn't have a written record on abortion, and uh, Amy Coney Barrett sort of does. So, I mean, it's a, that's not a very sound way to make these kinds of decisions. Because the debate itself has become very stupid on a lot of these things, I've got to say. Well, it is distressing that the qualification seems to be, is she geographically desirable? Right. Instead of, as you said, we used to select people because they were leaders in the field of law. They were thought leaders. They would bring something to bear in evaluating and when we get away from that and start looking at it as a political calculus, that's, it's really bad. So, uh, but let's, let's go into sort of a lightning round of questions okay. about the court because um, it is taking front and center attention. Um, and so we wanna look at, you know, what is it that we should be looking for? And, uh, but let's start with, was it even appropriate? I mean, it wasn't even two hours after Justice Ginsburg had passed that McConnell released a statement saying that his nominee, Trump's nominee, would get a hearing and would get a vote. Uh, and that was in the face of what he did to the Obama nominee, Merrick Garland. And so the question is, is there any difference that would justify that? Is the hypocrisy that is clearly visible is that going to have an impact in the selection process or even in the election? I don't know. I think the hypocrisy could hurt Republican senators who are on tape saying in 2016, we shouldn't do this in an election year. We should let the voters speak. And now they have to invent a fake rationale about, well, then the party, different party controlled the Senate and so forth. So it could hurt. I agree. The unseemliness struck me, and you think I'd be used to it now after four years of Trump and after the last 20, 30 years of American politics, I suppose, we've been gradually going down this path. But I said to someone, so it was Rosh Hashanah evening, actually Friday night, we had family over. And then I, but we just, they, they were little kids, so they left early, like at 7.30, and then it was right around then that the news broke about yes. Justice yeah. Ginsburg. And I remember, so someone called, you know, pretty quickly, they were, oh, you know, my friends tend to be interested in all this type of stuff. And I, I remember saying, I don't know what's going to happen. I, you know, but look, we obviously have 24 hours or something to think about it because obviously they don't say anything. I mean, it'd be inappropriate for, except for just routine statements of, you know, of, of condolence and of, uh, appreciation for a career, be inappropriate for either McConnell or Schumer either. I mean, you know, to, to say anything much. And if right tonight, that would really be, terrible and of course i was totally wrong you know <laughs> and by nine i got literally it was like nine nine fifteen right that mcconnell puts out his statement and by the next morning we're all you're in the midst of this brouhaha so so okay the second question about that is how should democrats react how should they respond to this rush to judgment to the rush to appoint and confirm um should they even though they argued against this uh you know you know, you can't stop it for a year. The president's the president until inauguration, and he has to be able to do whatever the president has to do. Should they retract from that and say, you made this rule, you have to live by it, you can't act on it? Should they say, if you do, we're going to enlarge the court? Should they say, we're going to, um, you know, back off of that, if you'll back off of that? Should they put term limits on the court? Um, and would that even 
be constitutionally permissible? Uh, what, what should they be doing? What should their response be to, to answer this? I mean, I, I'm not sure. I think they should, in the short term, simply call out the Republican hypocrisy. I don't think it's quite fair to say the Democrats are being hypocritical. Uh, I'm not that you were saying this, but others have said this. Because, I mean, they said the president should go ahead with, should be able to go ahead with his, uh, that we should consider the president's nominee. But, of course, the Republican Senate didn't. So then they're entitled to say, okay, well, you didn't, and therefore we shouldn't this time. I think the Democrats are entitled to say that and will say that. And then I think they should pummel, frankly, the Republican senators who have been hypocrites and see if they can't win some of those seats. They should make their case in terms of the hearings about the actual nominee and continue to make that case. I think it would be unwise to sort of commit right now to what the right remedies are. Besides, I don't think I know for one thing. I think they should just, they can say generally that they're not going to let this, uh, you know, they could wait, they could say that, look, we want to see, of course, if there is a justice, which they don't want, but if there is one, we'll see what the decisions are. Or they could even start exploring after the election different remedies of the kind you suggested. I think it would be unwise to sort of, but I think they should, for now, still try to make the case and appeal to the better angels of Republicans' nature that they shouldn't go ahead with this. They probably will, but you know they might get lucky and, as I say, things might go a little bit skew for the nomination, in which case they might still be able to, to deter uh, some Republicans from going ahead. Is there a conservative justice that you would be proud to have on the court? Is there someone either particular or in sort of generic terms who you would feel comfortable if they went ahead with? You know, I'm a, I used to know that uh, those people, but I'm the generation I knew, of course, are now too old to be nominated for the court, especially because we do have this slightly crazy situation, I, I, you know, where it's such a high stakes thing that no one wants to, quote, waste a pick on someone who's, you know, our age or something like that, <laughs> which I think is bad. I mean, I would be for, as a matter, if you ask me, where am I constitutional convention, how should we set up the Supreme Court, I'd be very open to either term limits and or age limits. But I, mean, I do think it would be healthier for the country if this were a once every 15 year thing instead of a, you could be making a decision for 35 years and so much therefore weighs on it. Um, but having, that's not the way it is and uh, that would take a, a while to, to bring about. So uh, yeah, no, there's no one I think is perfect or terrific. As I say, the ones that I know best are more like my age and uh, probably wouldn't be considered good candidates. Now, the truth is, if you put J. Harvey Wilkinson from Virginia or something on the court, very thoughtful, moderate conservative, who I think is probably 65 or 70, maybe, yeah. you know, probably only served 10 years. So that would not fulfill the ambition of reshaping the court for a generation and a half. But he would be a thoughtful jurist. I mean, somewhat like Roberts, I would say. Definitely not appointing someone like Senator Ted Cruz or Tom Cotton, I think, was on his list as well. Yeah. Uh, that was a bit bizarre. That was, just, that was just to make them feel good, I think. Yeah. Um, so, I, so, you know, in large, in, in this debate, Mitch McConnell has had this really um, influential role of um, bringing this, you know, on the floor for a vote. Um, I, I've assu I'm assuming that you've had many interactions with Mitch McConnell, and I'm curious as to what he's like, like based off of what you know about him and your interactions with him, like what is, what motivates him? Is it like power? Is it just maintaining power in the Senate? Like um, explain that for our audience. Yeah, and maybe I should go after this. And uh, that's, that's such a hard question. I don't know that I have a good answer. I've known him, you know, casually over the years. Mm -hmm. I would have said two things um, drive him. One, he very much wants to be majority leader, not minority leader, and he has been majority leader for a few years, and that's the, what he always aspired to. 
And I think, I mean, to be fair, he presumably believes that it's good to have a majority so you could pass some legislation that is in accord with your general worldview. But uh, he's so political, such a political animal that he sort of focuses more, I think, on the majority side of it than the, than the legislation side of it. Um, but that's not unheard of for legislative leaders. They, they like power. They want to be in the majority. Now, he has always cared a lot about the courts. And at one point, I think 25 years ago, that was connected to a certain view, may have been right, may have been wrong, but it wasn't an unrespectable view of the First Amendment out of limits on speech, and he was very much against limits on political speech, and he liked uh, uh, the court decisions that struck down limits on people spending money on their own behalf and then on others' behalf, uh, at least indirectly through the independent expenditures and super PACs. I don't know that that's worked out quite as well, but he, that, I do think to be fair to him, that's not just because Republicans might have benefited more from those decisions, and I'm not sure they really did. There are plenty of, you know, wealthy Democrats who can spend money on super PACs too. Um, but it was, it was, I think, a genuine uh, kind of sincere thought that government shouldn't regulate people's ability to run for office or spend money on other people on behalf of other people running for office. So that would be one thing that I would have said was sort of he really cared about. I wouldn't say on the social issues that he's ever had any great interest to my knowledge in them and and uh, never been a leader on them. I'm an economics. I think he has a standard Republican view of things, foreign policy, again, not very distinctive. So a very political guy, kind of cold-blooded, not the warmest person in the Senate, uh, obviously a shrewd, tough political operative. Um, but I really wonder in this case whether the toughness and shrewdness, maybe it gets him what he wants in the, in the short term, which he will think is the long term, which is getting a justice on the court. But I think it could really damage Republican chances to hold the Senate, to win it back even in two years. Uh, we're not gonna help Trump, probably gonna lose anyway. Um, I mean, McConnell's really made, you know, he, he did not like Trump. I'm sure he would have preferred a much more conventional Republican, but he has, he for me is the most culpable of all the enablers of Trump. If McConnell had signaled early, look, it's legitimate to break with him sometimes. I mean, this is America, we're very used to, people in Congress differing from their president of their own party, including the leaders in Congress sometimes, not like this never happens in either party, right? Um, and, you know, let's, we'll, we'll work it out, negotiate. Sometimes we'll negotiate with the Democrats, sometimes we'll negotiate with the Trump administration. If that had been the attitude, and we'll call out Trump when he does something that's really beyond the, the pale, that would have, we would have had a very different last three and a half years. I, I really think, and I, other people could have spoken up too. I mean, it's not like these people are, pathetic, you know, are, are appointed by Mitch McConnell. They're elected by the voters of their state. So I don't give them a pass either, whether it's Lamar Alexander or a million other, or the other senators or members of Congress. But McConnell was in a unique position to be a check on Trump. And he really hasn't been, and I'd say even the opposite, he, by, by not stopping Trump in all kinds of ways and by sort of excusing him or, or undercutting attempts to bring him in, uh, he's done a lot of damage to the rule of law and to the constitutional system uh, and enable Trump to do to do a lot of the damage that Trump has done. Yeah. It sounds like you're really leaning toward the motivating driving force for McConnell right now is the legacy of a conservative Supreme Court. But others have said his real driving motivation is to keep control of the Senate, which might change the dynamics of whether he pushes for a vote before November 3rd or in the lame duck session. Um, how much weight do you think the people arguing that have? 
and I should go after this. I think that's a very good point. I mean, I think those two are in tension with one another now. I think he's decided to go for now for the bird in the hand, which is getting a justice confirmed because he you know, probably doesn't know what the election outcomes could be. But if his members decide it's just killing them in the election, you could have a reversal. I think the lame duck has always been very problematic. I mean, maybe, are you really going to, you're going to lose the election, Biden's going to win, maybe you lose the Senate, uh, control of the Senate, and then you're just in a lame duck going to jam this through. I do think at that point, the Mitt Romney's the world. I mean, Romney can tell himself that he's doing something sort of in accord with the law here and somewhat in accord even with custom of just let president makes a nomination, we deal with it. We don't worry whether it's October or March. I think after 2016, that's a little bit of a fanciful thing, but you can sort of see how someone could say that. Um, to say after a lame, in a lame duck session that you're gonna do that really is, uh, would, uh, it's never happened in American history. And so I, I really think it would be, I've, I'm doubtful that could work. So I think it's McConnell has to jam it through now or, or it doesn't happen. Yeah. I mean, as we head into election day, I mean, the biggest question for voters is just, um, you know, what's the possibility of electing a Supreme Court nominee um, before November 3rd when voting ends or no, after November results are confirmed, but before the Congress is sworn in on January 3rd? Like, what is the possibility of this Supreme so Court? I, yeah, I should, I should go here because I see my, but um, yeah. yeah, I think, I think a lame duck confirmation is unlikely unless Trump wins and then they mm-hmm. might as well go ahead and do it. I mean, there's no difference, but, and the Republicans hold the Senate. But I, I think if Biden wins, it will be very hard to justify to the American people that you're confirming a Trump nominee. And I think there would be a huge public outcry, really huge, more than even what's going to happen in October, which is questionable to say the least, but not quite as like to be in a lame duck. Anyway, I should go, but uh, thank you so much for having me on this. This has been a fun conversation. Thank, thank you. you so much. Educated our viewers. We appreciate it. So. Thank you. Thank be well. Thank you. We hope you listening also enjoyed this episode. Be sure to follow us on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook, and send us suggestions, ideas for future topics, and speakers you'd like to see via Jill, myself, or our website. Lastly, Intergenerational Politics is now on Apple Podcasts, so be sure to subscribe and rate our channel to support us. Thanks for listening, and see you on our next episode.